This is Ben Smith. I'm a photographer, and this is my podcast, A Small Voice Conversations with Photographers. Thanks for listening. Hello, people. This is Ben. This is my podcast, A Small Voice Conversations with Photographers which you probably already know. Thank you very much for joining me, as always. It's nice to have you along. It's uh, the 19th of January, the day before the podcast goes out. I'm recording this intro. It just occurred to me that it's the inauguration tomorrow. So if you are in the United States, I hope it's going to go well. Let's, um, you know, fingers crossed that things pass off without too much incident, or preferably with no incident at all. And, um, yeah, we can uh, all move on with our lives, hopefully. Aside from all that, um, I have got on the podcast this week, my guest joining me is the brilliant Magnum Photos nominee, Nana Heitman. And before I introduce Nana, I'm going to do a little bit of housekeeping. Don't skip forward. Um, It's just a few little things I want to say. First of all, don't forget, there is now an exclusive fortnightly members only episode available on the alternate Wednesdays in the month when there is no free main episode. That's this one. So... Uh, please do go and sign up for £5 a month at pod.fan to access that special subscriber-only content, which includes the previous week's guest answering to any bonus questions, catch-ups and check-ins with former guests, which are really good, I have to say, uh, though I do say it myself, all the occasional specials from festivals, openings and events. Well, you know, yeah, as and when that starts to happen again, that will be the case. And uh, you can also, if you want, show your support and help fund the ongoing production of the podcast by signing up as a supporter of the show for £3 a month. Although for the extra two quid, you get the actual access to the episode, which you don't get with three quid. Uh, Or you can make a larger periodic occasional or one-off donation. They're they're always on cue, the... uh uh, sirens, and you can do all that at pod.fan where you can easily find this podcast page. Okay, this episode of the podcast is brought to you by the Fantastic Charcoal Book Club, the first and only book of the month club dedicated exclusively to photo books. And each month, Charcoal works with the most respected names in contemporary photography to select a first edition monograph that is a must have for every collection. I got the Fantastic Mark Steinmetz book the other day, it's the January book of the month. Um, hang on a second. It's called South Central. I should have known that, for God's sake. I've been looking at it. But anyway, I digress. Each book arrives signed by the artist, along with a note card and print from an esteemed guest curator, with free shipping to the US, Canada and the UK. All that, along with the members-only pricing in their online bookstore or more, makes the Charcoal Book Club the most brilliant and exciting way to stay up to date with essential work in contemporary photography. Do leave me a positive review on iTunes, if you wouldn't mind. If you could, and you haven't done that already go over there and drop off a five-star review. When you do do that, though, if you do do that, do review the actual podcast. Like, don't review, like, a guest or something. Like people on Amazon who go and, instead of reviewing the book, review um, the condition in which the book arrived or something. You know what I mean? It just doesn't make any sense. Just try and make sense. Thank you. I appreciate that. So, as I mentioned at the beginning, my guest this week is Nana Heitman who's one of several young nominees at Magnum Photos. 
And because this is a podcast about photography, we need to talk about Magnum Photos for a moment because it would be remiss of me. I would feel weird about it if I didn't at least mention the fact, given that I've got a Magnum nominee on this week, that the agency has been embroiled in serious controversy over the past several months. So some of you will know all about this and some of you will be almost completely oblivious to it. So for those of you in the latter group, let me just bring you up to speed with what's been going on. Last summer, the online photography magazine F-Stoppers published a piece under the headline Magnum Photos is selling images of alleged child sexual abuse on its website. And the story was centred around some images that Magnum member David Allen Harvey, previously of this podcast, I spoke to him on episode 50, had done some 30 years ago about prostitution or so-called prostitution in Bangkok, Thailand. And as that headline, which does not pull any punches, indicated, the legal and ethical questions being raised in that piece were about as serious as it gets. And then a week later, David Allen Harvey was suspended from Magnum for one year after the agency investigated a separate allegation from when I don't know, that he had harassed a female colleague. Fast forward to mid-December, and the Columbia Journalism Review published a fairly exhaustive piece in which 11 women came forward to allege sexual misconduct by David Allen Harvey, covering a 13-year period. And Magnum issued a statement in response, announcing an independent investigation and inviting the women and any others who had been on the receiving end of such behaviour to come forward. And in response to that, at the beginning of January, some weeks after I'd had my chat with Nana, an open statement to the agency expressing solidarity with women who'd come forward and calling for collective accountability against sexual harassment in photography was signed by 647 people from the industry. Uh, including seven Magnum photographers, one of whom was Nana. The other six, in case you're curious, are Beaker Deporter, previously of this podcast, Carolyn Drake, previously of this podcast, Christina DeMiddle, not yet done the podcast, Hannah Price, one of the young recent intake of nominees, not yet done the podcast, Nusha Tavakolian, not yet done the podcast, have asked her, um, haven't heard from her, and Sarapura, previously of this podcast. So those are the seven. Is it weird that that number is so low, or is it entirely predictable? I don't know. I can't say uh, what I think about that, except that I th wish that number was a hell of a lot higher than just seven. But anyway, in the wake of all this, Magnum has now finally given in to some fairly consistent pressure from its critics to make public their code of conduct, which they had previously declined to do. And David Allen Harvey, meanwhile, has instigated legal proceedings against his own agency. So the entire shit show rolls on. And please bear in mind that this is merely my own attempt at summarising the entire mess as concisely as I can. So, you know, if I've been inaccurate in any way or if I've left anything out, then I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. Um, but what I have done is include links on this episode's page of the website, bensmithphoto.com slash a small voice, 
and then Nana, uh, which will be the obviously the most recent one, where you can go and, and find all the relevant uh, information, chiefly among those links. Uh, the latest F-Stoppers piece on the subject, which usefully includes all the relevant links to the relevant um, pieces of information that I've mentioned, all of which is public domain. Anyway, I kind of didn't really want to, in a way, sort of hijack Nana's episode with all this and, and kind of overshadow our chat with this controversy. And in fact, I let her know that I was going to do this intro because I thought that was only kind of courteous to give her a heads up. And, you know, Nana was kind of, in a way, I think quite surprised that I hadn't asked her about it. And uh, I hadn't asked her about it because I'd made a decision not to. So that is entirely my my bad. And, uh, you know, that was perhaps a misjudgment on my part that I decided, you know what, she's a young nominee at Magnum. She's just joined there. What What's she going to say if I ask her, you know, to comment on the on the current controversy at Magnum? You know, if she was a full member, a well-established member, um, yeah, it'd be a different ball game. I wouldn't hesitate to ask someone like that that question. But a nominee, someone who's just you know come in at the ground floor, it just seemed to me, it's frankly kind of you know unfair to put her in that position. And you know, in in total fairness to to Nana and with credit to Nana. Uh, I I think she would have been fine to talk about it. Um, and like I say, especially in view of the fact that she was one of a very small number of people who had the courage to uh, sign that statement, for which I applaud her. So, yeah, the fact that we didn't talk about it, I mean, we ch- chatted in December, so a lot of this stuff hadn't happened, but uh, that was entirely on me. Um, so w- with all that out of the way, let me introduce Nana properly. Nana Heitman. Uh, is German-Russian documentary photographer currently based in Moscow, Russia. Her work often deals with issues of isolation, physical, social and spiritual, as well as the very nature of how people react to and interact with their environs. Nana has received awards that include the Leica Oscar Barnack Newcomer Award and the Ian Parry Award of Achievement and has been listed on the 30 New and Emerging Photographers to Watch in 2020. Nana's work has been published by National Geographic, Time Magazine, uh, the uh, Le Monde Magazine, the Volksrant, I don't know how to pronounce that, Stern Magazine, and she's worked on assignment for outlets including New York Times, Time Magazine, Washington Post and Stern. Uh, Nana joined Magnum as a nominee in 2019. So without further ado, please do enjoy this chat I had with the wonderful Nana Heitman. Where are you? You're in Moscow. I just came back from Moscow to South Russia yesterday. So I've been working here on a project and now I'm still in the forests and I'm still in the city. And okay. yeah, kind of escaping Moscow also where things are also getting really bad, but nothing is closing yeah. down and no real restrictions. People not really wearing masks, so... Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so, what's the what's the name of the place that you're you're at now? Um, now I'm in a place. It's called Anapa. It's like a really ugly, um, how do you say, like holiday city where people come in summer for holidays. It's on the ocean, and from a little bit from there, there's a really beautiful national park mm. where I've been working on a project. Yeah. 
Oh, so that's why you've been enjoying nature. <laughs> yeah, you've you've been out in the wilderness. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was. I think uh, uh, the best and is, for me after being yeah. in Moscow. God, yeah. Well, you 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 did a you did a picture series on the on the pandemic in in Moscow. We'll we'll talk about that a little bit, I think. Yeah. Um. And and this this thing of where you've been is that part of your ongoing project? Um, that's a project I uh, kind of more or less stumbled over by coincidence. I was like on a road trip and like I knew that place and I just somehow I wanted to go there and my boyfriend's brother he was living there for one for one year I think and yeah so I just came there for like three days and in the end like I really liked that place and what's like was interesting what is happening there right now like it's a national park with the only place that has, has Mediterranean vegetation in Russia mm. and yeah and some like since the 60s it's like the part of or a place where the hippie nudist community gathers in the summer and some some people stayed there forever or oh. for many years now living in the forest in some little cabins. Yeah, and some years ago, Medvedev, the former president, he wanted to build there his luxury holiday vacation house in the middle of the national park. And they were already starting to cut down everything and the people who lived there, they could stop this because they noticed since they are in the forest that it's happening and now somebody set like a really huge fire in the park so really huge this old old trees were destroyed and now they're chase trying to chase out these people and it looks like they want to build like some holiday resort in this mm. park mm. so yeah that kind of made me staying there yeah, yeah. So this has nothing to do with your kind of Baba Yaga project, or is it? Do you no. feel like it's somehow an extension of that? It's not. It's a separate thing. Yeah, maybe it's also kind of like I don't know, people living isolated more, more in the nature. I think. Yeah. Well, that's definitely somewhere. A, maybe it's some extension, just in a place that is yeah. not so far away. Well, it's definitely a recurring theme, that's for sure, because that that does come up a lot. Actually, speaking yeah. of of which, I just spoke to Evgenia Arbogeva. Uh, oh, so, I love you know, her work. Yeah, oh, I really love her work. Yeah, so it's going to be you and Evgenia one two after the new year. All the listeners are going to be um, getting out the map of Russia to figure out where you're both um, working. <laughs> yeah. I know it's a I know it's a long way. You're not going anywhere near that far north, are you? No, no, I've never been that far north like mm. Evgenia has. Like for the river, like I just made half of the river, like it also ends up in the north in the Arctic Ocean. But I like I wanted to go there this summer, but then because of COVID, yeah, I didn't want to risk being on the boat with many people and bringing COVID mm. into this remote region. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I will get to that one as well. I'd like to. I'd like to hear more about that story, but I think I might sort of get your backstory first, and then uh, mm -hmm. the listeners can find out about how you came to become a photographer and um, and and not and got into Magnum as well uh, at uh, a very tender age, which is a a great achievement, and um, we can we can hear about that as well. But so your mum's Russian, your dad's German. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You so like, you grew up in Germany. 
I grew up in Germany. Yeah, I was born in Germany. Like my mom, she's from Moscow, and my grandmother used to live in Moscow until last mm. year. Yeah, so, yeah, I used to come a lot there. Yeah, never really so, outside of Moscow. So, and like, so your parents, how come they met then? Were they, were they, were they, was your, your daddy visiting uh, Russia or your mum was visiting Germany or what? No, um, like my grandmother, she used to be a interpreter from German, Russian, English, Russian. So, and she, like, she was working a lot in Germany, even like one time in the 60s, she had a chance to work in West Germany for some company. So she was always going a lot back and forth. So my mother even was born in East Germany, but they immediately left back to Russia. So that's why there's okay. like kind of this German background that my mother also grew yeah. up with German yeah. language. And she, in 89, she could leave to West Germany to work on the university. Hmm. There, like she's a psychologist. So there was some research program. So that's that's where and when they met. Okay, okay. So you, your mum, did you grow up speaking Russian with your mum and German with your dad? Because I know you sort of, it seemed like you had to maybe brush up on your Russian at some point when you were, um, you know, planning on working there more. Yeah, um, like my mum always speaks Russian to me or she always spoke Russian to me. My father always German. And like I understand everything fluently, but at some point, like I kind of, I grew up in a small city or town in Bavaria. So at one point I started to really feel embarrassed that I'm not not hundred percent German and like friends from school asking if I'm Turkish or and it's like for me I felt like I it's something bad not to be oh, really really? German. So I yeah and not really yeah hundred percent German. So at one point I started to be really mad with my with my mom was speaking Russian to me in public and I was a lot of years I just was answering in German mm, so I, I started now I have oh, like a German accent and yeah. yeah I would have thought that would seem like a cool thing you know that you that you kind of got this dual nationality but that was just uh, slightly embarrassing to you when you were as a kid you wanted to uh, kind of be fully fully one thing you know like completely yeah yeah I think to, as to, a child to fit in a lot of everyone wants to be like like the others <laughs> yeah exactly of course yeah and then you get older and you realize what a brilliant thing it is to uh, to have that kind of both those sides to your yeah, yeah, to your yeah. kind of and and especially you know more than one language um yeah. so when well, tell me about how you discover photography then and started getting interested in it initially mm, i don't really know how i discovered it like i think i just started with the little analog camera of my mother i started to photograph when i was like 12 Hmm. like and then i remember like a lot of my friends my mother's friends they immigrated with the collapse of soviet union to the u.s so when i was 14 i remember i was visiting one family there and i was really fascinated by new york and started to photograph like a lot and one of my mother's friends there he's a photographer and he like kind of noticed my my interest in photography and gave me his old lens so I could get a mm. DSLR camera and yeah that's I think and that was the beginnings more into photography and of yeah. course all the National Geographic's geo magazines of my my parents okay so that was the kind of yeah. photography that you were looking at 
So, so is yeah. that what well, I guess that so that's would make sense why documentary photography became of interest because that was the tradition of that kind of Nat Geo type work. Yeah, I think I really I don't know I, I just remember as a child I really loved going through all the pictures and the National Geographics. I don't know I remember like I think still in my room there's really bleached out hanging now the pictures I cut out of the magazines like from William Albert Allar, yeah, I think from the huh. Wild West and yeah, mm, interesting one, one of the pictures that really early fascinated me. Yeah, and then like when when did you start? seeing it as a potential career did you go and study or something after school or what was the, the path like when I like when the end of school was approaching like I knew that there was like a program like in Hanover photojournalism and documentary photography so I was thinking to apply there but like first I spent like two years traveling and working and photographing before applying there and mm. doing my portfolio yeah okay right so you so you're really entirely self-taught in that in that respect you just went out and and started shooting and trying to figure out how to make it all work yeah at the first yes until until i started to study but i think like everyone who studied in there in hanover photojournalism like most people they like a lot of them were much older than me they were already photographers before Hmm. And wanted to get more right. into journalism. Yeah, 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 yeah. When did you start this um, the the project about the uh, the last coal mine in in Germany? Because that's one of your kind of was one of your early projects. Was that the first yeah. kind of major thing that you embarked on? Yeah, yeah. I think that was the first project where I spent like a lot of time on. I think I started like in two thousand seventeen, probably. Right. Okay. Yeah. So tell us about that one. That you, that's called uh you can explain how the title for that story came about ah, and, and, and what yeah. it all means is i'm gonna completely torture the pronunciation <laughs> but i'm gonna go with uh veg von fenster so veg von yeah, fenster. yeah like translated into english it would be like gun from the window and because like there is a german saying like germans use it a lot like for example, soon Merkel will be gone from the window. Like soon, she will be not the chancellor right. anymore. For example, or not influential anymore. So, um, and I never knew that this was like this phrase came from the coal mining culture, because like, and then I learned that because a lot of coal miners, especially earlier when the working conditions were less good um like a lot of people suffered from silicose silicosis like yeah silicosis yeah, silicosis yeah. i think yeah so the coal miners usually used to live all in one settlement and driving with the bicycles or walking to to the mine every morning so there would be like for example you see every morning like the old coal miner hans or whoever he's called standing on the window gasping for air because he has problems with breathing. Um, so maybe like the next day you will be walking again to the mine and suddenly like Hans is not there anymore because he passed away. So that mm. was where this so, phrase yeah, came he's from. He's gone from the window. Yeah, and I, yeah. yeah so I so saw this really fitting how, how the coal miners also felt like soon, like with the closing of the last mine, all this tradition, all this, the coal mining, which has been so important for German economy 
all the culture and so on is like gone from mm. the window and yeah yeah nobody really cares anymore no well i, I wouldn't have even thought about you know whether there was still coal mining in in, in germany or any anywhere else particularly yeah, you know, it's, it's a, <laughs> yeah it's something you just think you kind of assume that it's happening in, in most countries some, somehow that there's still there's still the kind of uh, the vestiges of a of a of an industry but yeah you yeah. You, you discovered that this was the last the last one so was it difficult to get access to that place or you know how um, did you go about it yeah i'm I'm not like I I tr I remember I tr like before there was another coal mine and I remember I once wrote them and never received an answer, so I thought it will be really hard to get into this one and I knew one guy because I was photographing a politician once he was former the press secretary or the press man of the the coal mining association or not association but like all the coal mines are in one kind of company. So in the 80s, so he was helping me to get access, which I think kind of, really, maybe it would have also worked otherwise, but later I heard that it was really difficult to get access, especially when the closing was approaching, like a lot of press yeah, yeah. was going there. Yeah, And I also had to beg every time, like, please, please take me once, once more down. Right, right. <laughs> And and how did the miners react to you being there? How, what did they make of you? Mm, I think I remember, like, also the guy who always accompanied me, he's also from a miner, but works now in the press. And I remember once he was, like, kind of upset that why are you all journalists just coming now once we're closing, we would have needed you much earlier, mm. like, so, like, to fight that coal mining right, doesn't yeah. end in Germany. So, but otherwise, like, people were also happy to have photographs of themselves. And But once you're down, like, the atmosphere, it's like, I don't know, there is some danger and it's hard work and you have, like, they have to do everything in time, so people are really stressed, so they mm. mostly don't pay really attention right yeah yeah they've like got more important things language. to yeah yeah they've got more important yeah. things to worry about once they're down there Everyone but i mean I, shouting but yeah in a yeah good way. <laughs> i wanted you to talk about this moment that you had with the with the portrait um um because uh, i think it's a really a really interesting kind of realization you came to and um maybe i'll even use that picture as the one that will go with with on the on the website when uh, when your your episode goes up but um mm -hmm. there, there's a there's a really nice portrait um of a couple of the miners and you know i think you were resistant to the idea that they would want to pose and uh, look down the camera because you had this kind of sense of that not really being somehow a kind of thing that documentary photographers want can you talk a little bit yeah. about that yeah like i think where i studied also photojournalism it was like especially our old professor it was like really classic photojournalism and yeah i was really into photojournalism so i always wanted to be more like this observer and yeah like just capturing like the moment when nobody pays attention to me mm. and yeah especially like not under earth but as soon as i was up like on earth again Everyone wanted like pictures with their bodies and posing, and it was. And I just wanted like to photograph them how they're smoking, like super tired. So I was, and like especially like a woman, they pay even more attention. So I was always getting like really 
tired of this. And then, like, of course, I took the pictures. So they also have some memories. And then I remember these guys. Like, I was, okay, I take one more time their picture. And then maybe they don't pay attention afterwards to me anymore. Yeah, and I think I'm even not sure if in this moment I realized how strong their look was into the camera. Maybe I even just realized afterwards when I was looking through the pictures how much more... It showed to me of also this body body ship or however this camaraderie. Yeah, yeah, this camaraderie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so from so in a way that kind of taught you from that moment on that it was because when you think there's a there's a pretty long tradition even in documentary photography of you know people posing for portraits. So you're not you know yeah. in a way it was kind of I, I get what you're thinking because I used you know used to think similarly that you know it's sort of somehow anti-documentary and you, you just want them to. Yeah you know it's like okay i'll take a quick picture if you just leave you know stop uh pestering me but also you've got a nice stuff in the background as well there's a there's a kind of documentary moment going on as well it's a kind of both so yeah i yeah, think that's yeah. a, it's interesting and you've done you've done quite a lot of yeah it hasn't bothered you from now on you've done a lot of stuff with portraits of people um looking yeah. into the camera and now that was one of the projects that was in your portfolio that got you mm-hmm. into magnum photos and the yeah. other one was was hiding from Baba Yaga. Yeah, and yeah. That's exactly. that's that's another one of your main your main your main sort of ongo- ongoing project, I suppose it is, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, so Too tell us, <laughs> yeah, ongoing as as these things often are. Um, stopped stopped for for after COVID. <laughs> well, of course, yeah, of course. But you, yeah, it was kind of a it's kind of a, a road trip story in a way. Um, but you can t- tell me. Um, first of all, and I know you, you're probably sick of, of telling it, but you've got, you've got to tell us what, uh, who Baba Yaga is and, and, um, and, uh, and tell the story a little bit. So we, we've got a, a kind of sense of mm-hmm. where it all, where the idea came from, really. Yeah. Um, I think like for, uh, for people in the West, like a lot of people know Emerson Lake and Palma, and they oh, yeah. also had Baba Yaga in there. Maybe you know it. From oh, there, or you hear it, maybe it sounds familiar from there. But like Baba Yaga, she's like um, an important character in the Slavic folklore. So she's like this evil witch, and she appears in really different stories and different constellations. And there's like one story where Baba Yaga, she's um, kidnapping a girl called Vasilisa in the forest and like was and Baba Yaga she's this evil woman treating all her surroundings really badly and Vasilisa is this gently little girl feeding the cats over there and so on and so one black cat is helping her to escape from this evil witch she gives her a comb and um, a towel so she says like once Baba Yaga is running after you you just throw it behind you and a broad river and a thick forest will appear so Baba Yaga can't get through anymore so that was kind of the idea as I have also seen the Yenisei River which has always for a long time been like a place where people escaped like the old believers from the Tsar and later from the Soviets or the Cossacks which were like wild rider associations which were like formed by criminals apostates or serfs and they formed into this rider associations and we're always venturing deeper and deeper into Siberia in the search for fur. And there, what life was also really free at this time for Tsarist Russia. 
compared to Moscow regions. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so that was kind of the idea behind. That was the sort of the seed of it, yeah. And then so you kind of followed, you used the river as a kind of guide or as a kind of place yeah, to yeah, explore. Yeah, as a, yeah. Um, my idea was like, I don't know, like I've grew up kind of with all these Russian fairy tales and Russian children movies. So I've always, and my grandmother used to do tours in the Tretikovskaya Galerie, which is like where all these historic masterpieces are stored or exposed in Moscow. So and there is also all these fairy tale pictures, which are from Nesterov and so on, which I kind of grew up with. So that was kind of like one thing I saw like, as which kind of, how is it called? Kind of, I don't know, I grew up with this picture of Russia or my my perception of Russia. So I don't know, I took like these paintings, which which I really loved as kind of an inspiration. You, you did, like how, how many miles did you cover? Because it was kind of, it's quite an extensive, obviously the river mm. goes on forever. It's like three and a half thousand kilometers or something, <laughs> which is, which is yeah. you know, substantial uh, distance. But um, but I think you, you've, you've done... Yeah, you've done a lot of, of traveling. How did that all sort yeah. of... Were you trying to kind of just get away, as it were? Mm, like, I totally underexpected Russian distances. Yeah. So, until now, I even didn't travel half of the river. I just traveled where it's possible to go by car. So, but yeah, probably a lot. I'm not mm. I'm not really sure. Like, usually I wasn't really driving that much because sometimes I spent a lot of time in Tuvan Republic and was like not going too far then of course long distances like I didn't photograph anything I think I tried to calculate once and was like 17,000 kilometers but I don't remember it anymore it's yeah it's too long it's a long time ago so like you you were sort of using this fairy tale as a as a as a starting point and you found an actual Vasilisa was that always something you had in mind or did that happen almost by accident that happened by accident yeah tell me about her that was a girl like i like in tuban republic one friend of mine she's from there and her mother she's a geologist so they really helped me they knew all this remote regions how to get there they knew people there and yeah with them i could they took me to this old believer village and they it's like a super closed community and they don't really like people from from the our world coming to them so yeah i was staying there at one person he's an old believer but he's not not a believer but he's from a family of old believers you might have to you might have to explain what this all means oh sorry old believer no no it's fine it's fine (laughs) yeah um old believers they are um, like in Russia, there was once under Tsar Nicholas, there was the, not Nicholas, sorry, um, there was this reformation, like they wanted to make Orthodox religion more more modern or adapt it more to the Greek Orthodox belief. So, and which was like, there was like some changings, how people pray like this or like this. Or I think, okay, nobody can see later, but... No, that won't, um, yeah. You're sort of <laughs> uh, crossing your fingers in a particular way, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or 
or just some willy which sounds kind of simple to us but like people russians were always wearing beards so and the tsar wanted that people cut off their beards so they are more european and people like really refused this so once like old believers until today they are not allowed to cut their beards for example so and because like a lot of people who refused to take like the new reforms of the orthodox belief they were fleeing always deeper and deeper to more remote regions like you even can find old believers until today in china and canada or argentina or siberia so yeah and yeah and in this village there was one old believer family but they are also not religious and their daughter i somehow we got little bit closer or started like a little bit little friendship and she also felt always kind of excluded of this community because both her parents are deaf so she's also kind of an outsider in this in this community and she was telling me she just has one friend in another village which is like super far away when there is no school so it was holidays at the time i was there so yeah we started to spend some time together and doing picking mm -hmm. strawberries and hanging out sounds on her very lonely. Book. sounds like a very yeah i kind of feel sad for her and it sounds like a lonely existence but then the, and the picture sort of there's a kind of melancholy to the picture actually i was going to ask you about that because you were talking i heard you sort of talk referring to uh something that you were calling russian melancholy and um uh. <laughs> I, was, i was wondering what that that is is that is that a sort of is that something that the rest of the world seems to somehow expect from Russia? Or is that, is that something that Russians sort of talk about themselves? Um, yeah, it's some this, like Ruskaya Tuska, Russian melancholy. I think it's when people talk about that themselves a lot. It's like the darkness, it's the cold in the winter. So people, a lot of people suffer from Ruskaya Tuska, from Russian melancholy. And a lot of people try to kind of treat it with with a lot of vodka or I think it's sometimes even like a kind of feeling of life. It's not necessarily something something bad. It's just like this feeling which kind of overcomes you, especially like in the in the darker months mm. Mm. of the year. Yeah. Do you know um the book Winterice by uh, Luke Delahaye? Yeah, I think that's that's the worst form. Of Ruskaya <laughs> Yeah, that's about <laughs> like with, yeah with the nineties, which was like really really heavy time. Yeah, I believe. it's a classic. It's a great it's a great yeah. thing, but that is quite that is quite yeah, yeah that's a good it's example. It's heavy, but yeah, and beautifully photographed. I saw there was a picture of you actually working, and it was you were pho photographing this incredible building with the sort of sun the sunlight kind of pouring through mm -hmm. a couple of the of the windows. Now. Had you already kind of found that place and and decided to come back and photograph it, and you know you knew what time of day it was you were going to get the sun and all that? Do you plan things very carefully like that, or, or was that again a, a kind of piece of luck? I came there back really often. I remember I was like by coincidence we got invited by some Armenian family, like there's some Armenian community and they saw me parking in front of their street and the woman invited me to their home and it ended up I was staying three weeks at their place and I know I remember that she took us to her birthday party somewhere outside 
of the of the city. And I remember when we were driving back, we were passing this building like I was in their car, so we couldn't stop. But yeah, somehow I, I don't really remember if the light was falling, particularly like on the picture in this moment. But I came back there a lot of times to like kind of find the moment when the light is exactly standing like this. Mm. And yeah. yeah, it's amazing. I, what is it? An old factory, I suppose. Yeah, it's an old flower factory, like where they produced flour. Like before, like in Soviet Union, there was still a lot of um, industry in Turin Republic or as many places in Siberia. And like with the collapse of Soviet Union, all this shut down. Like next to this building, there's a former carpet factory, which is also standing totally empty. Like there's a lot of factories and it's all just. Mm. feels totally apocalyptic because nature is kind of taking it back yeah, while yeah. people don't really have work in this regions. What well, let's talk about I just want to ask you about a couple of the other characters that you came across now what the gentleman who's sitting posing for you in front of his um a kind of a what looks like a bit of a junkyard but it's probably his home tell me about that gentleman um, that is Yuri. Um, I remember I was driving and I saw like some fire and I tried to find where this fire or the smoke is coming from. And until I found out it's like the landfill which was burning. So I ended up by coincidence on this landfill and it was like already getting dark. So I didn't want to stay there really long anymore. But I saw some flags, some Russian flag like in the background on the, or in this little hut. Like and, and it looked like somebody's living there, so I tried to get there back again. And like I asked people who work on the landfill, who's living there, and they said like it's some Russian guy. And somehow it took a long time to find a way to get up there because when you just walk up there, like he has like fifteen dogs, who are really protective. They just oh, attack yeah. you. Yeah, and one one day I found finally a way how to get up by car. So yeah, it was more or less coincidence to find out. Yeah. Like I remember I, I arrived and he was like asking what I want. And I said, like, like I said, like I'm a photographer, or I'm photographing. And it's somehow it looked like there's a pirate living up there because of this flags hanging there. And he said, like, I'm not a pirate. I'm, I'm just a simple worker. So he's a guy, he said he escaped like the city of some, years probably ago and like there's a huge problem with synthetic drugs and alcohol so he said also a lot of his friends they are live living now on the in the graveyard so he kind of escaped from all this and he's yeah. living up there now which is like kind of freedom for him and build up everything with what he finds on the landfill yeah yeah he escaped that fate well, how, were you did you feel safe like most of the time because I, I presume you're sort of traveling on your own you have to you have to worry about your kind of security and your your personal safety but was that an issue at all or were you just kind of mm, some like people were i like i started at this moment i started in tomsk in the tomsk university which is like another siberian city and like a lot of friends there they were super worried when i said i will be driving by myself to tuban republic because it's considered like the place with highest criminality in Russia but and but like f 
people were saying like people sell you drugs around any every corner and everyone is drunk and but I think probably because I don't have any person I think when you're in another country and you don't didn't grow up with this history maybe there at least for me it's like you don't really fear feel the danger mm -hmm. or can't really imagine so I like and I think because I'm not really a Russian it's maybe also less less dangerous for me because now there's like in a lot of region there is like this patriotism growing for the native people and like a lot of Russians had to move away from there because mm. yeah they were fearing their security so I think for like kind of a foreigner it's still also not that dangerous but of course there's always a risk but I don't really remember like being afraid or yeah. I remember one time I was in a village and there were two Russian grandmothers coming out and asking like are you American what are you doing here today everybody got his paid his this like it's on Friday everybody got paid his um their pension everyone is drunk on their horses go away and my husband he just hanged himself today we're waiting for for the funeral car and oh my God. I think that, <laughs> like, it sounded super surreal to me, and I first thought like I was misunderstanding what, what she was saying. But yeah, I like like nothing happens, and it was like in this moment it was a really awkward mm. situation, but like no scary experiences. God, yeah. So now, with this with this portfolio of of, of those two stories that we've talked about, you. Um, you submitted that to Magnum and I think you were, were you were sort of supposed to be still at college weren't you still studying your photography uh, yeah yeah course like so like did, sorry you, missed I a, didn't... you skipped a few steps there Nana <laughs> <laughs> yeah like you, you definitely still... skipped a few steps between uh you know studying photography and getting into Magnum photos like I think <laughs> most people would see see there's a there's a bit of a yeah you've you've jump you know kind of leapfrogged a, a few a few uh points in the in the journey there tell me a little bit about it yeah um like in germany we don't have to pay student fees so i think most of my student colleagues we all didn't st um finish studying like even though i haven't been into university for for three or four years probably i didn't really set a foot into yeah, but I'm still enrolled, so I think that's also something like I could be finished already done right, okay. with studying a lot of years ago. I just need to write my bachelor finally one day. Yeah. 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 It's pretty extraordinary that, you know, you, you had enough sort of self-confidence to think that you were ready to apply or that I'm, I'm sure you were encouraged to apply. But um, like, did it come, you know, did it come as some sort of a... A surprise to you that 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 you know that was even an option yeah actually um i just remember at this time like i think ah that's even when we had uh, in university a course with dominic nar the photographer and mm -hmm. he was like saying how important it's to like apply to grants to competitions and even if you don't win so i was really eagerly like applying everywhere and i remember it was just before before like the last minutes to apply for Magnum and like it says like you're represented there for two years and I think I wasn't really 100% in 
aware what I'm applying for. And I'm, I know I was really hesitating if I should apply because I thought like I'm, my work is not maybe too mature, but I thought like just just give it a try. And yeah, it was super unexpected when mm. I think Jerome at West called me if I can enter some publications and some printed portfolios so they can look at it at the AGM. So uh -huh. I think when I met you in Al, I was still <laughs> like this, this time was super cloudy for me because it was yeah, you're still in shock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm still in shock until today. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Okay, so so anyway, the the Baba Yaga that project you you know you're going to sort of continue with. I think um, I want to talk to you about this um, you, you, this kind of pandemic uh, story that you did in mm -hmm. in, in in Russia. Um, now it sounds like you might have even had COVID at, at one point. I don't know if you think that you did or whether you're unsure. I, but at one point, I was sure I had it. I think that's why I went to the hospitals. And once there was the possibility to test your antibodies, and I tested three times because I couldn't believe that I don't have antibodies. So I think it was probably just just a stupid flu. I didn't oh, okay. cure. <laughs> Well, it sounds because like, you lost your sense of taste, didn't you? Which is a kind of, or, or smell, was it? Lost, I, I just lost my sense of smell. But uh, yeah, my nose was, a nose was super blocked, but it was like I used it. So I lost it like I couldn't smell anything at all. Mm. And once I read, like at the time I was so sick, I never considered I have COVID because I didn't have fever. I had a really bad cough with even blood. But I never had fever, and at this time it was always written like you have fever and a cough, then you should check for yeah. COVID. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. Okay, so it's that. Yeah, so I suppose it could. Yeah, it could easily have been just. Yeah, yeah maybe, or I don't have or antibodies anymore. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, what was the? Because the, the situation in Russia was was very bad. I mean, they have had really um, one of the worst COVID experiences. Uh, I yeah, think probably, you know, actually after... much worse now. <laughs> is it? Okay. Just, just that nothing is locked down now. All right. Okay. Yeah. So how did it all come about? Did you, were you commissioned to do, to do a story or did you just go and, you know, do it off your own bat? Mm, like at this time there was like, which really inspired me that there were like this Magnum quarantine conversations. Uh, the Magnum like, quarantine. Yeah. 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 And it's like, there were always this email exchanges and, Everyone was wondering, like, what to do, like, realizing it's like a historical time and what will be like Magnum's voice or your voice as a photographer and how to photograph something you can see. And yeah, like these dialogues kind of really inspired me. And then there was like, I think Alex Maioli was the first and later Lorenzo Meloni. They were both photographing in Italy and like the work was like so strong and I had the feeling like in Moscow or in Russia, it's, the situation is getting so bad. And like, I don't know, I also looking at the pictures from the Spanish flu, which I think are like an historical document today, like an important one. I had the feeling I want to, to do something in Russia. And yeah, first it was just, I don't know, photographing weird things like from the church, some anti-corona praying processions and so on until by coincidence with one Russian editor, Andrei Polikanov. I don't know if you know him. Um, mm -mm. We were in contact because of another project and 
then like I let I somehow I told him I would like to photograph in the hospitals and some days later it happened that by coincidence his editor like the main editor of how's it called main editor or whatever he was friend with one doctor in one of the biggest covid hospitals in Moscow and this doctor said like he's like a really critical doctor or maybe anti-government doctor or however you call it and he was saying like I want to have someone who photographs who documents how how life in this hospital is really like like he or she can stay live in my office and stay as long as she wants and okay, yeah great yeah so you had this one really what the one really important contact yeah. yeah so what what how kind of kind of describe a little bit about what you sort of came across once you were in the hospitals because uh, i think you know i imagine it was quite a shocking situation mm-hmm. to be in what sort of experiences were you sort of having there while you were taking pictures mm. like for me like the first day it was like the most intense day like i also stayed like i think 11 hours there like i didn't stay that long anymore after but I think for me, like, it was, I don't know, kind of traumatizing in some way because, like, I've never photographed, like, any crisis or conflict and there was, like, you, that you enter, like, this hospital ground and it's, like, thousand patients just with, just sick with COVID, like, nothing else, like, and it's one of, like, was one of 59 hospitals treating COVID in Moscow at this time. So it was like just the imagination already was shocking. Like like all these hospitals, they're just full with COVID patients. And then like, I don't know, like seeing people dying or seeing dead people I didn't really do before, except my grandmother. So yeah, at some time, I, some point I think I felt, especially the first day, I felt like kind of paralyzed also. I don't know, I felt, it felt strange to photograph people suffering and yeah, so I remember that also this first day I really met Yuri Kozirev. So, and he was photographing there, and I was always wondering like, Yuri, he's so experienced and he's a war photographer, and I think he can photograph much more uh, with a clear mind there because he has seen much, much worse things. So, yeah, well, maybe, but then yeah. again, you know, I, you know, yeah, maybe that's not necessarily such a, a good thing you might might be bringing some emotion to the, yeah. to the pictures you know in, in a way so that's what Andrei Polikanov later was kind of saying that I think like that he thinks because I can kind of find maybe a more soft way or a more empathic way to to show it or I at mm. least hope <laughs> yeah yeah definitely and one of the problems was was that the, I think one of the problems in in Moscow is that like the Russian Orthodox Church, they, you know, some of their their kind of senior figures were uh, insisting that um, that worship was kind of more important than than quarantine. Is that something that you also tried to sort of photograph that side of the story? Yeah, this was really important for me to kind of show the impact of the church. Also, like the doctors in the hospital I photographed, they were so mad because like after um easter like even it was prohibited to hold services in moscow apparently they still did and 
their hospital was later fully packed just with priests. Oh right, oh Christ, yeah. In the, in the intensive care station. Right. So yeah. So um, I think for me it was really important to show kind of this because also the Orthodox Church grew so important in Russia with with Putin again and so influential. So it was and they were like everything was locked down, but at some point like the churches were still opened. Like even you're not really allowed to go on the streets, but services were still held. It was like I don't know this paradoxy which was interesting and also shocking at some points i also tried to go to the easter service which is like the most important holiday in russia as christmas in in europe yeah but yeah therefore i went a little bit outside of moscow where it still was legally to held services mm. now you've got a thing called red zone which is kind of looks like you haven't actually um, unveiled that yet. Is that is that a project that you're that you're working on currently? Uh, it's um, it's also a bit COVID, just like in the remote region of Russia and Dagestan, where because like Moscow, it's like super rich city, and they have all this medical equipment. Even like they had didn't have enough sometimes, but still like in Moscow, like there's the best medicine, and once you leave. The capital, it's like there's like nothing and like the medical situation or the medical system is just totally old and not up to date and they don't really have equipment and stuff. So yeah, like like for example in Dagestan, which is one of the poorest republics, the, once the lockdown started and all the guest workers from Moscow and Petersburg and so on, turned back home they brought like covid to this like remote region and to this old medical system which totally collapsed and even when you were dying you could, couldn't get into the hospital so i was photographing there but yeah i'm still trying to mm. kind of sell the story because one editor he was blocking it for such a long time and then they let me fall down so now all right still searching for someone <laughs> yeah and I, I know you you sort of you're using quite often your big medium uh, medium or large format film camera um but it like are you kind of are you switching between different types of 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 medium like even with the the uh covid pictures they're not yeah. they're not 35 mil are they what are you what are you working with um i'm changing all the time i think i just i just um some days ago i decided not to photograph on film anymore because it's too too expensive <laughs> yeah it but is. usually yeah i'm i think for me it was really helpful to start photographing on the large format and like i've at the same time, I photographed with the digital camera just to set the light and in case I do something wrong because I never did photograph on the large format before. Mm. But I think like just the process was really important for me. Even like a lot of times the digital pictures turned out better or I did some mistakes on the large format. But I don't know, just this slow process of working kind of really helped me, especially for, for portraits. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Um, the other projects I wanted to ask you about was Utrish, um, mm -hmm. which is also, I think, something that you're 
That's what I was talking to you in the beginning where right now in the in the national park the people who live there you you seem to be drawn to these um isolated marginalized communities what 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 makes you interested in that I think I don't know maybe I feel comfort more comfortable there myself I really? think that's one, or I don't know, I feel much more connected to those people. I don't know, I think that's one reason. Like, I don't know, I just went to this forest and I felt so much in love with this people and this place. And it was like also kind of healing for me after being so long time just with COVID and COVID and in the city. So, yeah, I think it's mostly this, I don't know, this connection to nature or the I don't know, the people who are there and somehow like even like this uh, the coal mine, it's kind of like in some way this place or where like the people really fascinate me and maybe like I don't know, more simple people or not snobby people or I don't know how mm. but somehow yeah, yeah. Like, like this isolation or maybe I feel isolated a lot of myself or because I'm quite introverted person i don't know maybe it's all these things that kind of fine fell together come together yeah but yeah so now do, do you feel is it a lot of pressure to be a magnum nominee and know that um you know you've got to sort of prove yourself uh when the time comes to sort of <laughs> you know show them what you've been up to kind of thing how's that feel uh yeah it, i don't know it's kind of a pressure especially like when i just joined i got to hear all those different stories where this and this peep person was kicked out and how you have to be and what and this like really insecured me and like with magnum it was like so unexpected and i didn't know anyone from there so it was like mm. i don't know really overwhelming at one point and really kind of stressing me out but yeah i think i'm more comfortable now or i think have you had any good advice i think like recently i talked to alessandra sanguinetti and she she said like if when she was like photographing these two girls for her like nobody knew her and like she could photo like be experimental do no pressure no time pressure do whatever she wants And she said, like, if she would be in, at this time, like, she would have joined Magnum, that it has, would be, have broken her creativity. It's, I think, like, as soon as you'd kind of start paying attention, like, that you want to be a part of this club or whatever, or photograph, like, to prove something to someone else, I think that's really blocking yourself. Or I had this feeling also mm. that it's happening to me, I hope. I could free more from this now. Right. So you can't you can't afford to let the sort of pressure mm, somehow change the way that you are working instinctively. That you know you need to be true to your own sort of process, as it were. Is that? Yeah. Is that... Yeah. I hope. So. I think so. Like I think when I started to photograph there in Siberia, I was super free, and like if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. And I just can go back and like I felt super free to try new things and like there wasn't like the only pressure was like maybe f coming from myself 
that I wanted to produce something which means something to me. Mm. But that was all. And I think, yeah, if you are that free, like, I don't know, I think creativity is kind of easier going mm. in some way. Yeah. yeah. Maybe, maybe pressure or proving like can, I think in some way it, it kind of helps at some point. Like, I don't know. I think I always need kind of some pressure to just get moving like it can be pressure I put by myself but yeah I think you need to kind of find some balance mm. well I mean when you think about how you you want your kind of career to to unfold have you got a sort of idea of what the perfect scenario would be in terms of doing your own personal projects against working on editorial commissions and that kind of thing. What what do you sort of, what would be your kind of ideal situation as far as mm. that goes? I think, of course, the ideal situation would be like working both editorial and, and on personal projects. Mm. I think I'm just right now, I'm kind of, it feels like so frustrating how magazines shutting down, like, I don't know, the French market is seems like totally to be collapsing and there's less and less paying. I I don't I think even for Magnum nobody can just live on editorial, like it became such a small market. And I don't yeah. think it's getting bigger. So I don't that would be of course my ideal imagination to work this way, but I think yeah, right now I'm and right now I, f I think like I'm thinking too much editorial. Like I need to photograph something and then sell it to some magazine. That's, I don't know, maybe that's how it was when I studied. It was like kind of this mindset was put into us or it was like this kind of atmosphere. So I think, but I think you need to kind of find new ways. Like I never produced a book and there are like so many people who produce a book and maybe it's much more, a much better way to show your work mm. in a much broader context but yeah still you don't have you can't reach that many people of course with a book yeah. then you can reach with a magazine so yeah I'm always kind of I was thinking the past weeks especially when pitching stories and yeah there's so little money yeah I don't know it's I was thinking myself how how it will continue if like the editorial market is so small and yeah. which other ways there are yeah, well, I think everyone's trying to figure out the same yeah, questions. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, for instance, you did you did a project um, which I think was a, was a friend of yours who's a clown uh, in ah, yes. Moscow, and 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 uh, it was about you know sort of I don't know it's all, all shot during c the COVID situation, but that ended up as a cover story in in a German magazine. So was that something that you? you just pitched to them or was that something they were interested in? How did that kind of um, pan out that way? Actually, like I was that, like the, that's my boyfriend on the pictures and. Oh, that's your boyfriend. Okay. Yeah, exactly. We're living together. And I don't know when quarantine started, like I always wanted to photograph him more because he does all this crazy things all the time. Mm. Just, just by himself. <laughs> yeah. But um, so you had a, a good subject just readily available. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. I thought now, like, it's the moment I can, like, there is more time. I can finally, like, for me, like, kind of the lockdown was also, I think, a time where I photographed so much. Like, I never photographed that much every day before. Mm. And, like, also tried new things. Somehow it was, like, really inspiring me. So, yeah, that's when I started to photograph him. And that's, for, like, it wasn't in this, like, they didn't publish the story, whole story about the clown, I think they've never seen it. There was from Magnum. There was this project or assigned from from Süddeutsche Zeitung Magazine about hope. So every photographer photographed or submitted a picture connected to hope. So at this moment, I was photographing Andre and kind of I thought like take a picture or especially photograph a picture for for this project. Mm-hmm. Like I see. Yeah, so it was a group. Fitting. Yeah, it was part of a, a a wider group kind of a of a thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Yeah, well, good luck for twenty twenty one. Let's hope it's uh, going to be a better year than twenty twenty was. It couldn't really be much worse. Although yes. I, I hesitate to say that because maybe it will be. Who knows? What are you looking forward to? Kind of getting on with, assuming that it's okay to sort of go back out into the world next year. Um, like photographically for sure, I, yeah. want, I really want to go back to the Yenisei River. Yeah, I was even thinking maybe to go back this winter and quarantine myself before. Yeah, but at least in the summer, I really would like to continue this project and do a book out of it in the end. So that mm. would be something mm. I would be super happy. I don't know, seeing my family finally again, I didn't see them since january because borders are closed since like 10 months oh wow okay so, yeah so god you haven't seen the family yeah. for ages all right well i hope you yeah, get back yeah. to do that well nice chatting Hannah. thank you so much for joining me i really appreciate thank you making you. the time thank you really happy we made it finally <laughs>